1: So this week we're going to talk about the Lily Lid family murders.
0: Sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. And I want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. This case does involve children and the death of a child. So if that's not your thing, can move on to, to next week. We won't take offense. But definitely move on to next week because that's when I present. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I want to give a huge credit to um matt lakin who is the author of an article who i got most of my information from and he did a story for knox news actually for the 20th anniversary of this case and that's part of the usa today network and it was published april 2nd 2017 so if you're interested in learning more about this case definitely go check out his article on sunday april 6th 1997 Three members of the lid family met a brutal end as they were shot and left for dead in a ditch on the side of the road. Vidar Lillilid, 34, and his wife Delphina Lillilid, 28, died in the ditch where they were shot. Their daughter, Tabitha, who was six, would die later at the hospital after her body was lifted off of her mother. Peter, who was two, survived the event with lasting physical problems related to the two bullets that entered his body. Natasha Cornett was 18, Karen Howell, 17, Joseph Risner, 20, Jason Bryant, 14, Joseph Mullins, 19, and Crystal Sturgill, 18, would all later admit to murder and attempted murder. So just kind of keep in mind how young these six are. I mean, four of them are technically adults, but I mean, I'm 23 and I'm not a real adult yet, so... Just kind of keep that in mind as we're going through this case about just really how young these six people were that committed this terrible crime. But before we dive into the events that actually took place that day, let's learn a little bit more about the Lillelid family and those that chose to end their lives. The Lillelids were traveling home on I-81 South from a Jehovah's Witness convention at Freedom Hall in Johnson City, Tennessee. The family lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. Vidar was originally from Norway and had moved to Miami. And there he met Delphina, who was originally from New Jersey and was a daughter of Honduran immigrants. The two married in 1989 and moved to Knoxville after having vacation there and fell in love with the mountains. And being from the mountains, I can definitely see how they just came here and were like, yep, we're moving.
0: I'm a little partial.
1: (laughs) Tabitha was two at the time of the move. Vidar worked as a bellman at a Holiday Inn in West Knoxville, and Delphina was a stay-at-home mom and homeschooled the children, which during quarantine, those of you with kids know, is super, super hard.
0: (laughs) That's when you have mucho respect for those teachers.
1: Oh, yes. The family was very involved in the Jehovah's Witness faith and made the decision to attend the convention in Johnson City in 1997. And a big part of the Jehovah's Witness faith is bearing witness to friends and strangers. And keep this in mind as we kind of go through the story, because it plays a big part later. I know in the town that I live in, we constantly have people of this faith come and knock on our doors and give us pamphlets. So it's a super common thing. So jumping into our killers, Natasha Cornett definitely appears to be the ringleader in all the research that I've done on this case. Cornette had a difficult past and appears to have had many mental health issues going on. She reportedly had an eating disorder and engaged in self-harming behavior. Cornette reported that she had visions of angels and demons since she was a little kid. And Cornette's mother actually tried to have her committed to get psychiatric treatment at the age of 14 after she came at her with a knife that'll do it yeah yeah Yeah. unfortunately though she was unsuccessful cornette had stated that she wanted to live out the movie natural born killers and i'm gonna date myself here and say that i've never actually seen that movie the plot of this movie is you know kind of commit multiple murders and flee to mexico you know normal 18 year old teen stuff
0: oh every, every teen's dream
1: right so Cornette wore a lot of black, was into witchcraft, called herself Satan's daughter, you know, cool, that's fine, do your it's thing. late 90s. Yeah. Not judging. So Karen Howell was Cornette's best friend, and Cornette called Howell her soulmate, which is, you know, kind of cute, best friend stuff. On a
0: demented, you know, sort of evil track, sure. Right, right, but you know. You're my evil soulmate. Hmm. Yeah. Satan's child.
1: Mm. Hal was also into the occult and also reported having visions like Cornette. Hal also reported that she had been a victim of sexual abuse. Joseph Mullins was dating Cornette, and there's not a lot of info on him out there. Joseph Risner had dated Cornette and was now dating Howell. Crystal Sturgill was kind of a newcomer to the group. She had been kicked out of her home after reporting sexual abuse from her stepfather. So we're kind of seeing a common... Yeah, there's a common denominator here. Yeah. Jason Bryant, who was the youngest at 14, was on probation. Uh, Bryant was a runaway and was picked up by Cornette, actually. And to prove that he was devoted to the group, he let Cornette carve her initials into his arm.
0: This is, you know, clearly someone whose brain is not developed.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So Cornette really wanted to live out this fantasy of causing chaos and heading to the Mexico border. The group was partying at a hotel room in Pikeville, Kentucky, when Cornette brought up this idea again. Rizner was on spring break, and he had a car, a blue Chevrolet Citation, that was registered to his mom, Mary Castle. And just like that, the are Group decided, let's do it, and took off.
0: Have you seen how ugly those cars are? I have not. They are. You should be with (laughs) them.
1: Cornette's mother actually reports seeing the group before they left, um, stating that Cornette had said they were going to start Armageddon. And Karen said, the end is coming. Cornette's mom responded with a simple, oh. Oh, yeah. I mean not the mom's fault but when i first saw that i was like huh what a response <laughs> exactly oh my child wants to you know create armageddon huh <laughs> i mean and maybe these were just you know they sound like these were just kind of odd kids maybe this was a normal
0: well and also a lot of these kids came from traumatic backgrounds so yeah. maybe their parents were um you know had their own issues that's true it wasn't necessarily that she was supportive of armageddon right right yeah.
1: we're not like condoning armageddon
0: right. yeah great right. go ahead son i love you have a
1: good time <laughs> so the group hit the road and while on the road they stole two guns a nine millimeter nine millimeter and a 25 caliber pistol and some cash they then got a speeding ticket about an hour away from the rest area at mile marker 41 on I-81 South. They decided to stop at the rest area to hotwire a car, but there were too many people around, so they just decided to do normal things, get snacks, take a bathroom break, that sort of thing. Uh, at 7.20 p.m., a cream-colored 1987 Dodge van pulled into the rest area. When the van pulled into the rest area, the Lilylid family piled out. Peter had an earache, so Vidar took him for a walk while Delphina and Tabitha went to the bathroom. While there, they ran into their friend Karen Sinclair and her daughter Kara, who had also been at this convention that they had been at in Johnson City. Cornette and Hal actually passed Delphina and Tabitha as they walked out of the restroom. Vidar approached them with a religious pamphlet, because Jehovah's Witness, and asked them if they believed in God, to which Cornette responded with a big old nope. That's emphatic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Risner and Bryant then came up to the group, and Vidar asked them if they wanted to learn more about God, and they said sure. Delphina and Tabitha then came out of the bathroom and joined the group at a picnic table. Their friend Karen saw the group at the picnic table as she drove off, and she would actually be the last person to see them alive, which is kind of... Kind of sad. Yeah. That's hard to
0: live with.
1: Mm-hmm. While Vidar was talking to the group, Risner got up and went back to the car where Mullins and Sturgill were sitting in the back seat. Risner got the 9mm out and told them that they were going to do something and to get ready. Risner came back with the gun and told the family to be quiet and nothing was going to happen. They just needed the van. On the way to the van, Vidar actually tried to give up his keys and wallet in exchange for letting them go. This didn't work and they forced the family into the van. Now, at this point, this makes me believe that the motive never was robbery.
0: Clearly not. I mean, if you have, I don't know, you have the guns, she wanted to be natural born killer, not natural born robber. Mm-hmm. Just
1: saying. Yeah, I think it's definitely a, you know, if they really wanted to just take the stuff, they would have left the family at the rest area. Exactly. So Cornette suggested making Vidar drive the van. And as Vidar drove, the kids were clearly confused as to what was happening. I mean, these random strangers get in your car and are driving you around. Put a gun to daddy's head? Yeah. So Delfina actually tried to sing to them to calm them down, and Bryant told her to shut up. Hal smiled at Tabitha, who offered her a Hershey's Kiss chocolate. Oh, my gosh. Instant tears. Immediately. I mean...
0: So, you know, the kindness of this family, like, just does not leave you. Mm-hmm. Just even at this point of how terrified you would be, she offered her chocolate.
1: Yeah. Vidar was then made to pull the van over on Payne Hollow Lane and get out with the rest of the family. And now this is where the stories start to get a little bit murky. Not one of the six agree on what exactly happened. Next, so I'll give you a few different versions and you can draw your own conclusions. But first, I want to lay out how the bodies were found and kind of go through the injuries. And now this part is pretty gruesome. So if it's not your thing, feel free to skip ahead. Yeah. So after two separate 911 calls came in reporting gunshots on Pain Hollow Lane, Deputy Jeff Morgan and his supervisor pulled up to the scene around 9 p.m. They were met with headlights shining in their faces. The headlights were from a blue Chevrolet Citation. The Citation had been abandoned, was stuck on a stump in the mud, was empty, and the license plate was missing. In the ditch, they found four bodies that were full of bullets. Prosecutors state that the bodies were actually posed as an upside down cross. It was clear that Vidar and Delphina were dead, they had been shot multiple times, and their legs were crushed. Tabitha was laying on top of her mother, and she was actually moving. She was rushed to the hospital where she would later die from her injuries. When deputies went to move Peter, uh, that he actually cried out. And Deputy Morgan got down in the ditch with Peter and held him until paramedics arrived. Peter had been shot twice by a small caliber gun, once in the head behind the right ear that exited out of his right eye and once in the back. Peter actually survived and would require a prosthetic eye and multiple surgeries to correct the spinal damage caused by the bullet to the back. The autopsies on Vidar, Delphina, and Tabitha were completed by Dr. Cleland Blake. and Dr. Blake determined that the family had been lined up and shot, but he was actually unable to tell if the parents had been holding the children. And he was unable to tell if the family had been posed or if they just kind of fell that way. Vidar had been shot in the right eye with a 9mm. He had three shots that formed a triangle on his upper right chest, all from the 9mm. He had one shot from the twenty-five caliber pistol and one shot from the 9mm to the center of his chest. Delfina had been shot in the left arm and left leg by the 9mm. On her left side, she also had that three-shot pattern that formed a triangle. And she was also shot in the abdomen by the 9mm and had two shots from the twenty-five caliber in her left chest. And Dr. Blake thinks that she could have lived up to 30 minutes after being shot, so she would have seen her husband and her children shot. Tabitha was shot once in the head by the pistol. Now, each one of the six will tell a slightly different story as to who shot who. Risner, Cornette, and Howell all claim that Bryant fired every shot with both guns. Risner claims that when the group pulled over on Pain Hollow Lane, they were arguing about whether to kill the family or to let them go. Before they could decide, Bryant took both guns and shot and killed the family. Risner claims that it was so awful and he couldn't watch. Now I can't BS on that, if you ask me. Bryant was the youngest at fourteen, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that he would have picked up both
0: guns. That feels very um cowboy, you know. Maybe he was ambidextrous. We don't know. Maybe. I mean. But we're also talking about a guy who allowed her to carve her initials in his body. Yeah. So, So. I mean, maybe it happened that way. And honestly, we'll never know. I mean. And he's also an easy um, guy to blame because he's the youngest of the group.
1: Yep. Now, Bryant actually claims that Risner and Mullins did all the shooting and that it was him who thought it was so terrible and couldn't watch. By most accounts of the crime, it appears that Sturgill and possibly Mullins never even got out of the car. So after the murders were committed, however they were committed, the group went to drive away in the Citation and the van. The Citation became stuck in the mud on a tree stump, and the occupants abandoned the car and jumped in the van. Risner was behind the wheel of the van and swerved to drive over the Lilylid family. That's why Delphina and... Vidar's legs were crushed because he ran over them, which to me says overkill.
0: Absolutely. We want to ensure that they're dead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's actually a good thing that they left the citation behind because the police were able to track the registration back to Kentucky and back to Risner's mother, Mary Castle. So you take the license plate, but you don't take the registration?
0: Well, I mean, they they were in a hurry.
1: Yeah, I don't think we're dealing with, like, top-notch criminals right right so by the time the police had tracked down mary castle and she confirmed that her son and his friends were missing the group had made it to the mexico border in arizona now in everything i've read it sounds like the computer system to run records on the u.s side was down and they weren't able to actually like run the license plate on the u.s side so why they let them go through to Mexico, I don't understand, but I also don't know anything about crossing the border. So
0: Well, and, and here's something that doesn't look suspicious. Several teenagers in a family minivan mm-hmm. uh, trying to cross the border into Mexico, that doesn't look suspicious at all. Right. Well,
1: once they passed through the Mexico checkpoint and the Mexican authorities actually checked and saw that they did not have the correct documentation to actually enter the country. So Mexico said no and sent them back to the U.S.
0: Maybe we'll in Mexico.
1: Once they got back to the U.S. side, the computer system was apparently magically working again.
0: That's convenient.
1: Mm-hmm. And they were able to run the license plate, and once they did, they quickly realized what they were dealing with. A quick search of the van showed the Lilid's belongings, including car seats and photo albums. And when agents asked Risner who the car belonged to, he claimed he didn't know. I mean, I don't know. Not the guy you just shot and, like, left for dead in a ditch? No, no. It's, it's
0: nobody I know.
1: Not that guy? Yeah, no. Hmm, cool, cool. Uh, the group was arrested and taken to jail in Arizona. And after the group had been searched, they found that Cornette had a wallet with a photo of Tabitha and a piece of Vidar's belt. Hal had a Hello Kitty diary lock um, that actually belonged to Tabitha. Sturgill had a key ring to the Lily-lit home, and the prosecutor would later use this to state that the group had taken trophies from their crime. So, again, not your, like, top-of-the-line, brightest bunch.
0: Yes, hello, kitty, I will take that. Yeah. Hmm.
1: So, prosecutor Berkeley Bell moved quickly to have this group extradited back to Tennessee to Greene County. And he wanted to pursue the death penalty for the four that were over the age of 18 and life in prison without parole for Bryant and Hal, who were the younger two. Now, there was a huge media coverage for this case, and the media kind of ran with the idea that the six were involved in the occult and were devil worshippers. And Cornette's attorney, in an odd way, kind of fed this fire, hoping that he could get an insanity plea for Cornette. Spoiler alert, this did not work. The town was... It's shocking. Right? The town was outraged by this crime, and there were lots of people camped out and would just scream at the defendants as they entered and exited the courthouse. Judge Eddie Baker um, actually denied the request from the defense attorneys to try the six separately, so they would have one trial where they were all tried together. However, he did agree that the six would never get a fair trial with a jury from Greene County, so he actually had a jury assembled and bust in from bradley county which is about 150 miles south which is something i've never heard of i've heard of them moving a case to a different county but i've never heard of them like assembling a jury and then bussing a jury yeah i've never
0: heard of that either
1: but i guess it's a thing
0: well and then i even wonder i mean even at 150 miles away Wouldn't there still be a bias? I mean, I would think you would have heard that a lot.
1: Right. I mean, it's a small town. This is, you know, something that spreads. Right. And this was getting national attention. I don't know if they would have ever found a jury. Probably not. Yeah. With that, the trial was set for March of 1998. Now, with such a heinous crime that was probably very messy, there was surprisingly little evidence. I mean, I'm sure there was evidence, but it was really hard to... Place the gun in someone's hand and say definitively, like, this one out of the six did it. So...
0: Well, because they all had different stories.
1: Right, right. So Bell, at this point, had mostly circumstantial evidence, but he had a key witness, who Risner had actually confessed to while being held in jail in Arizona. This guard was sitting with him around the clock as Risner was actually placed on a suicide watch... This guard had stated that Risner had confessed to killing the family. However, it turns out that this witness was ruled as unreliable due to him having an arrest record of his own. Which, I mean, kind of seems odd to me, but I guess the defense attorneys could have probably run with the fact that he had an arrest record. But I would have probably tried to use it, It's probably why I'm not a lawyer.
0: Really? (laughs) I didn't know that. It's
1: weird. So with all this in mind, Bell decided to offer the six a plea deal. And Bell was willing to take the death penalty off the table and in turn offered them life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, the kicker was that all six had to accept this plea or the deal was off. So the younger two really didn't get a deal. I mean, they were facing this charge anyway. And for the two that maybe never even stepped out of the car, this doesn't seem like a deal I would want to take. Right. But they somehow all came to this decision. And on February 20th, 1998, all six stood up in court and confessed to murder and attempted murder. And all six would receive life in prison without the possibility of parole. So to this day, all six remain in jail. Howell and Sturgill actually still communicate with the press occasionally and have released letters claiming that they were not involved in the killing, but apologize for not doing anything to stop the killings, which I don't know. I don't know where I fall on that. You know, you didn't have anything to do with it, but you sat idly by. Does that make you just as guilty? Was so this mob? association? Yeah. Was this mob mentality? You know, were you scared? I just—I don't pressure, know.
0: Did they threaten you?
1: Right. So I don't know. But regardless, they're—they're they're in jail. I mean, and that's where they're going to stay, as they should. Yeah. Bryant and Howe's attorney, which are the younger two that were under eighteen when they were convicted, their attorneys have actually applied for numerous appeals to retry those two since they were juveniles at the time of the murders. Um, all these requests have been denied. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that juveniles could not be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And in 2016, the court ruled that this could be made retroactive and began reviewing cases of juveniles sentenced to life without parole. In Tennessee, however, juveniles can be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole until they have served 51 years of their sentence. So before 1995... A life sentence was 30 years in Tennessee. And in 1995, there was this big crackdown on, you know, we're tough on crime, that kind of thing. And Tennessee actually upped their life sentence to 51 years, which is actually the longest in the U.S., which I was kind of always under the impression that a life sentence meant, like, your whole natural life. I assume so, too. But it's not. They have to put a age on it, like a like a number on it. So they put 30 years on it before 1995, but now it's still, it's 51 years. So what all this means is that after serving 51 years, they would be eligible for parole. So Bryant and Howell could be eligible for parole in the year of 2049, which seems really far away, but that would make Bryant 65 and Howe would be 68. So they both could have like a good 20 years or more on the outside if they were actually paroled. As recently as January, 2020, Hal has made requests for clemency. Um, She made a similar request in 2017 and that was quickly denied. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally hope they stay in prison for the rest of their lives because this was such a violent and random crime I mean, they robbed these three people of the rest of their lives. Why should they get the opportunity?
0: These people who were so kind to them. Yeah. All they they could have said is, oh, no thank you, and gone on.
1: Right, they could have easily just moved on.
0: They could have easily just stolen the van. Yeah, they if, had... If a, committing a crime was their choice, they could have stolen the van and just let them at the rest stop.
1: Yeah, they had every opportunity to... Just commit robbery, which, I mean, not great, but better than murder. Right. So, and then they wouldn't be facing life sentences. Exactly. So.
0: Well, and I feel like that also goes to show you choose your friends wisely.
1: Yeah. And peer pressure is such a crazy thing. Absolutely. I mean, this, the youngest, I mean, this kid was 14. I mean, his life's over for a decision to get in a car. I mean, he got in the car with Cornette. You know, this whole, like, twist of fate kind of thing. They exactly. got to the rest area at the same time. You know, if they had were 15 minutes earlier, 15 minutes later, would this have even happened? Exactly. Which is what's so scary.
0: Or if they had chosen not to stop there in the first place. Yeah. Well, what if we run by McDonald's? Yeah. You know? I mean, um, just on my part, you know, I am very cautious about rest areas. And this is probably not helping. <laughs> um, I may never <laughs> pee again at a... Well i'll pee just not at a rest area
1: right i definitely am scared to stop especially by
0: myself oh i won't by myself no 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 i will mcdonald's it up
1: yeah so this is definitely making it on my list of things not to do for sure yeah Yeah. rest areas are a big no thank
0: you for sharing that story and scaring the hell out of me you're so welcome this sounds great so glad we did this yeah me too Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this first episode
1: of Mountain Mysteries Tales from Appalachia. And I hope you join us next week where
0: Holly will be taking the lead on a case. We'll be talking about a murder that happened on the Appalachian Trail. All
1: right. If you guys are interested, please check out our Facebook page at Mountain Mysteries. Tales from Appalachia. You can also check us out on Instagram at mountainmysteries.appalachia and send us an email with some of your spooky stories or cases that you might be interested in hearing to mountainmysteries.appalachian at gmail.com because apparently mountainmysteries.appalachia was already taken, so I had to do the whole Appalachian thing. Again, thank you guys so much for listening and make sure to join us next week.